0: A big thing that I see a lot of founders mess up is the prioritization of, of dollars. What's step one, two, three, four in the marketing mix as you grow? Because you know, in the world of founding, being being too early is just as bad as being too late. When you're at that small stage, you need every dollar to generate a return to build a snowball. The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew and there
1: are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to The Dirt. Today's guest has truly been through what I would call the tech startup trifecta. He joined a tech startup that almost went bankrupt. He joined a tech startup that became a unicorn, valued at over a billion dollars. And he became a founder himself and was personally tested in almost every way possible on that journey. More on that later. He now takes his expertise to other digital startups looking to reach aggressive revenue targets and grow. Today, we dig deeper into how easy it is to unfit your company from product market fit, costly sales and marketing mistakes you need to avoid, and tips to weaponize the hard times to drive growth. Founder and CMO of Ascendit, Mason Dorner, welcome to The Dirt.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Jim. Excited to be here. Absolutely,
1: man. Let's let's start with the foundational stuff. What's your story? How you got here?
0: Yeah, so I've been in marketing for, I don't know, call it 14 years now. I, I started doing marketing when I was 18, you know, building websites, running Facebook pages for a couple small businesses that I worked for part-time, things like that, and gradually evolved into that being my core area of focus. I, I actually went to school for sports management, sports marketing, and worked in a couple sports related businesses. And within those, I was really an operations manager, but marketing fell kind of into my role because there was nobody else to do it and decided that I really liked that and found a passion for it. And anyone that works in sports knows that it's really not nearly as cool as you think it's going to be. Like, it sounds cool, but the hours are long, the pay sucks, just not anything like what it's cracked up to be. And so after doing that for a couple of years, I was like, you know, this is not really where it's at. This is not what I want to do. And it wasn't really that mentally stimulating either. Uh, when it all came down to it. And so I decided I'm going to go do this marketing thing and kind of double down on that. And so again, I had kind of self taught myself how to build websites, how to buy media, how to run Facebook pages, all that stuff. And so I was able to get, change careers, get an entry level position, you know, in marketing, kind of work my way from there. And over the years, I was able to work my way, uh, into Disney and was able to become. Really, the head of call it like digital media buying for Disney World. So I ran basically everything except for display banner ads. Right. Every other type of digital media, I was doing the buying for pretty much all of Disney World. So Facebook ads, Google ads, YouTube, all that stuff, and managing you know twenty million plus dollars in, in revenue annually. Doing about when I left, my portfolio was doing about six hundred plus million dollars in revenue annually, up from about three fifty when I took over. So. Uh, nearly doubled the business unit in the couple of years that I was there. And uh, again, just kind of, you'll find I, I get bored really easily and I always have to be working on something new, something interesting. And Disney was amazing, but I also started to get a little bored. You know, the business doesn't change that much, doesn't change that fast and started to get the itch, you know, to do something new and do something different. And Got the opportunity to go and work for a local tech startup as like the first media buyer. They had an outside agency and they had like two marketing employees. So I was going to be the first in-house media buyer and join them, grew them up to, you know, a billion dollar unicorn status over the course of about four years. That's a very, very condensed version of that chapter, but um there's a lot to unpack there that I'm sure we'll talk about more later. But did the whole billion dollar unicorn thing and then also started my own company at the same time and am now running that, which is basically an e-commerce and SaaS growth agency firm. So that's the really Cliff Note version of sort of my career path and how it's evolved and how I came to be here, you know, running Ascendit alongside my my co-founder. We actually don't have a CEO because there's two of us that are kind of co-CEO. So just want to give credit where credit's due. You know, I wouldn't be here without an amazing co-founder that I have. So that's that's how I came to be where I'm at right now. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Mm.
1: So, you know, you obviously simplified that version that I called the Startup Trifecta that mm. you <laughs> built some great stuff and and are still building some some great things at Ascendit. Talk to me a little bit about that that journey and some of the high growth times, but also some of the some of the personal tests that that I think you've got this phrase around weaponization mm. of 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 your own Bad days, or something along those lines. What talk to me about what that is and what that means to you, and what some of those personal tests that you faced were?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a concept that I call weaponized adversity. I have this grand vision that someday, you know, maybe I'll write a book on it. Mm-hmm. But where that came from is I was working at the tech startup, which is now called Stacks uh, Stacks Payments. Recently reached a billion dollar unicorn valuation just a few months ago. Right around the time that I chose to make my exit and just go all in on my own thing. But while I was at at Stacks, we were in hyper growth mode. I had just taken over as the head of marketing. You know, we're trying to go grow 300 to 500% a year. So, as you know, there's a lot that goes into that. It's an incredible amount of work just in and of itself. Simultaneously, I was also still building my own company on the side. So, building two companies at once. Stacks was definitely the priority, but my plan was at some point, you know, we're going to exit this thing, and then what am I going to do next? And so I didn't want to have that, you know, sit around for a year and ponder what matters in life and what I want to do next, or have an existential crisis. So I'm "I'm just going to start building this little thing on the side now, so I have something to do. And so I'm building two companies at once. And in the midst of all of that, I was on vacation actually with my wife, and woke up one day, got out of bed, and I opened my eyes and I couldn't see. I had double vision in both eyes and like my balance was really bad. I was having trouble walking around the room. I couldn't read and I was freaking out. And so like we cut the vacation short, we go home to Orlando, we see five or six different doctors. Nobody can tell me what's going on with my eyes. Finally, the sixth or seventh doctor diagnoses me and says, I have this condition called keratoconus, which is a a degenerative uh, condition in, in your eyes. It's hereditary. And basically my eyes are losing their shape. So think of like your eyes are supposed to be a circle. My eyes are turning into footballs and becoming more pointed in the front. My corneas are becoming misshapen, which is giving me the double vision. And there's there's no reversal for it. There's no correction for it. There's just this one experimental surgery. It might not be experimental anymore, but at the time it was. So insurance didn't cover it, had to pay out of pocket. And it's also a little bit scary, you know, signing up for something that's experimental, but it was kind of the only option and the surgery doesn't reverse it it just locks your vision in where it's at so it's like it's not gonna get any worse you're gonna have double vision for the rest of your life and i've learned to live with it you know thank god but it it doesn't you're going under this really heavy duty surgery to not even correct it and the surgery involves having like your eye sliced open with a scalpel while you're awake and then they burn it with a laser while you're awake and it's like the closest thing to a saw movie that i think is legal in real life it was like the worst experience of my entire life. And before I even made it to that actual surgery, in between my diagnosis and that surgery, I, I found a lump on my body where there wasn't supposed to be one and I got diagnosed with cancer. And so I'm fighting these two major health battles at the same time, multiple surgeries, and a really a, what ended up being a two-year battle to finally come full circle and be healthy again, all while trying to, you know, build two companies. So that's it's a ton going on. Like just building a business is a ton of adversity. And then you got not one but two life-altering health challenges. And that's, that's where this concept of weaponized adversity came to be is actually, I was sitting waiting to, I was in the waiting room for my cancer surgery to take the tumor out and I'm sitting in the bed and just having this weird kind of self-examination moment of, you know, this can derail my whole life. What happens if the surgery doesn't go well? What happens if I need chemo? Like all, all these terrible thoughts. And, I I had the realization of like, I got to stop this. If I let this run wild, like this is already a big thing that could alter my whole life. But if I let it run wild in my brain, it could derail all these positive things that I have going on with these two companies and with, you know, my wife and my marriage, my family, like I have still a lot to be grateful for and a lot to be happy about. And this could derail all of it if I don't keep it in its box. And so I'm sitting there in the pre-op room and I'm like, I'm not going to let this run any further. And so I get out my phone and I jump on Slack and I just start, I just start working. And so I'm slacking my team. The last thing that I sent before I went under was I asked my uh, my number two guy's name's Eric. But I was like, hey, man, what's our lead count at for the day? Because we manage stuff in very real time. And so I said, what's our MQLs? What are our SQLs? And what are our closed deals at? And he let me know where our KPIs are at for the day. And then I went under. <laughs> and then I... Uh, came out of surgery. First person I hit up was him and our CEO. It's around six o'clock when I wake up. What do we end at today, guys? And I'm just like, I'm not going to allow myself to live in this place of, of worry. And so the, the the strategy is really to box it in, to keep, keep the bad stuff compartmentalized, find something to take its place, which for me was like, I have all these great opportunities in front of me. And so I'm going to focus on those. I'm only going to think about treatment or doctors or illness when I'm at the doctor or when I'm having a discussion that's relevant to my treatment and to my recovery. Outside of that, I'm not going to dwell on it. And so I, I was able to kind of box that in and focus on work in, in order to fill that that space. And then the next kind of pillar, the strategy, the first one's compartmentalization, which I just talked about. The next part is finding places where you can win bigger because like my, my health is in a really bad spot. Like I'm taking a big L over here and it's really a bummer and it's depressing and it's this just monster thing to deal with but what i came to the realization of is i've got all these other great opportunities if i can double down on these great opportunities that i have and i can win like huge over there and win so big in these other areas maybe i can make my cancer look small and that's what i did and and it worked both companies grew like crazy i had a ton to be happy about still very difficult still dealing with cancer but i was able to win big enough in these other areas and be grateful for the opportunities that i still had. And I'm in a way better position in life right now because of that. I went faster and farther because I had that adversity driving me because I just, I had to win big enough to offset it. You better write a book <laughs> on that. So it, yeah. So that that's kind of the story. The other piece that I like to talk about too, is there's a book by Todd Herman called The Alter Ego Effect, which was life-changing for me. And I read it right before I got sick. And it's or I might've even read it while I was recovering from the surgery, but right around that time. And the whole purpose of that book is finding people that have gone before you, people that you want to emulate, find an area that's weak for you or an area that you want to be better in, and then build this alter ego that you step into and you leverage that person's power or skill. It can be a real person. It could be a person you make up, but basically you leave, you no longer identify as yourself and you move into that person and leverage that person's power and pretend that you are that person really, which sounds dumb, but it works. And so for me with cancer, I'm like, okay, cool. Who is a high performer that had cancer that overcame it, and came out stronger on the other side. And, and Doug, you me wrong. Say what you want about him. He's made some questionable moral decisions, but I'm thinking, you know, Lance Armstrong, the guy had cancer, the guy was at the top of his game, had cancer, went to hell and back and then came out and was able to win again. And so when I was going through cancer treatments and going through surgeries and recovering, that's who I was pretending to be. And so I looked at like the health, the diet that he went on. I worked with one of his doc, like one of his doctors that was on his team that treated him. I went and found that guy and he was my doctor. And when I recovered and I got cleared of cancer or cleared of, you know, like physical therapy, like, Hey, you're allowed to go exercise again. I went and I rode my bike 10 miles, which 10 miles is not a long way to ride on a bike, but it was symbolic to me of like, I'm going to take this journey and step into this guy's power and leverage this model. Because he's gone, like, I haven't gone through this before, but Lance Armstrong has, there's a road, there's a roadmap here, and I'm going to step into that and leverage his power. And you you can use this strategy anywhere. It's not even just, you know, an illness, like I use it for public speaking, I really admire Tony Robbins and Andy Frisella as public speakers. And so when I step on stage, and I'm now at a place where I do get to speak in front of 1000s of people, I don't need to step into their personas anymore. But when I was learning to do public speaking, I would be backstage or off to the side doing their routines. So I'm thinking of Tony Robbins, like he jumps up and down before he does, before he steps on stage, because he's trying to bring energy into himself to bring it into the crowd. And so I would jump up and down. I would do the incantations. I would rehearse things that speeches that he had given and step into that persona. And it allowed me to bring that type of energy when I walked on stage. And so this can be leveraged everywhere. It doesn't, you know, bad stuff doesn't have to happen to you to use this alter ego strategy that Todd Herman invented. But it helped me a lot to get through that illness. So, I mean, I just threw a lot at you, but in summary, it's, it's compartmentalization. It's finding bigger places to win, to offset the loss, and then using the alter ego effect, stepping into that roadmap, into power, into the power of other people that have gone before you in order to, to win in this area that you may struggle with or not be as strong in.
1: Well, that's great, man. And, and you've mentioned one other part that may not be part of the, that program per se, but that's been really helpful to you. And, and I know to me as well in business, which is just getting in touch with the spiritual side, right? Mm -hmm. Which is for us is, is grounded in Christian beliefs, but Mm -hmm. for whatever you believe in trusting that there's something bigger than you, right? Mm -hmm. Anything to speak in or speak on that, that connects that to this, this idea of weaponizing adversity is, is part of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, I, I'm a Christian. I put my faith in Jesus Christ and I attribute a lot of my success to that. You know, I haven't done any of this by myself. I've done it because I've got this power behind me that's allowing me to do that. I've got, you know, Jesus powering me forward. He's making all these things possible and me- making these opportunities greater than what I could ever create on my own. And yeah, it's, I attribute so much of my success to that and to my relationship with Him. You know, my, my business. There was a long time where like I was a believer and I would occasionally go to church, but it was kind of like, you know, it's over there in the corner and I'm, and work is over here and I'm doing my own thing in work. And when I'm at church, I'm at church. And then when I'm not at church, I'm just, you know, building a business. And I viewed them as very, as completely unrelated. When I merged the two things, the businesses got way bigger and way more successful because now I've got God on my side. You know, And again, you can be of any faith, maybe if you're not a Christian, whatever, but the confidence to execute, even if you believe that this is not real, the confidence that you have to execute and take risks and go big when you believe that there is a higher power behind you and helping you is massive. And again, even if you, at another point too, is even if you are not a God person, even if you're an atheist, the time that you take to pray or meditate or whatever you want to call it is incredibly important and incredibly powerful when you are trying to build a business or when you are going through hard things. The things that will come to you and the ideas that, will, that you will have when you slow down and just think is huge. And for me, when I'm doing that, I'm praying. like I'm talking with God and you know, I get some of my best ideas from him when I'm praying and I have these revelations. But even if God is not your thing, just the concept of meditating and reflecting is massively impactful on your personal success and on building a business.
1: Yeah, I think it was something like 80% of successful entrepreneurs attest that part of that success is due to some spiritual routine, right? Whether that's, you know, like us, some deeper belief in God and and meditation aspects connected to that, or simply just, you know, some other form of spirituality. And that's, that's, that's powerful, right? And something that we forget, like, we're not alone as entrepreneurs out there. (laughs) It's, it's okay. And it's OK to not be alone. You don't have to do it all on your own. You can have other founders and then you can also have this presence called God to help drive that success. Right. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: hundred percent. I mean, because entrepreneurship, it, even when you have a co-founder you know, or a team, it's, it's a lonely, lonely journey. It is hard. And I think oh, it's yeah. even more comforting and more important for entrepreneurs to be in touch with that side than the average person because of that.
1: Preach, man, love it. I love it. And and as part of that, one other thing that we forget, I think, that you and I have talked about is, is that the only thing tougher than being an entrepreneur is being married to one, right? Mm-hmm. Or being in a relationship with one. What's what's one thing that that you and your spouse have been able to to do to make that more feasible, both for her and and for you?
0: Yeah, I think it's been figuring out how to properly balance between the business and the relationship. Cause that's hard because, and we by no means did it perfectly. Like we went through a lot of hard times, you know, in the early on in our marriage, cause I'm, it was building companies I'm working hard and it was definitely, I was out of balance. I was probably prioritizing the companies and the work, too much and investing over investing there and not investing enough time in the relationship. And as an entrepreneur, you do have to invest way more than the average person in order to be successful. So entrepreneurs, you know, by nature, and if you're going to be successful, you have to be out of balance. But there's still a balance within being out of balance. You know, there's still levels of extreme, right? And so I I was really out of balance. And I think realizing when I needed to draw that hard line and becoming more cognizant of that uh, was important. And something else that I I realized is that when my relationship is not good, it's a lot harder to be successful in business. When you have a bunch of noise at home, it's way harder to focus on your business. So, yeah, sure, you may take a few hours away from your business one evening to do date night and invest in your relationship, but that's going to yield exponential returns because you're not going to have that conflict and that friction competing for your attention the rest of the time that you're on that you're working on your business. And I think uh, another another key to our success has been finding a really good relationship coach. You know, people tend to think of marriage counseling or relationship coaches as kind of a dirty word and it means like your relationship is super screwed up if you're doing that. But the way I look at it is as an entrepreneur, you're you're executing at a higher level than 99% of the population. You're doing something 99% of the population won't do or can't do. And so you need support like 99% of the population does not have or does not get. And that's in every area, not just in your marriage. But if you want to execute and build bigger businesses than the average person does and do harder things than the average person does, you just need better support in all areas. Even when there's not problems, like if you're a high, most entrepreneurs too are high achievers. They want better than average everywhere, not just in their business. So if you want better than average in your relationship, hire hire a coach and they are, and a good a good one is expensive but again it's you're investing dollars and you're going to get an ROI out of this and that holds true in investing in your relationship with a coach so my wife and I we have a relationship coach we meet with her regularly whether stuff's good or bad and I and we've come a long way our marriage is great stuff is pretty good now you know we used to be like we could not work together at all on on business which is and now that I'm just working on my own company I'm not trying to do two things at once it used to be my that ascendant was kind of my thing, and it was over here on the side, and we didn't talk about it or work on it together. But now that it's the main thing, my wife has started to help with the business, and it's actually productive. That's a huge milestone for us that we're actually able to work on this thing together. You know, she's helping with our social media content. She's helping to book travel. She's helping. She helps me with a lot of my speeches that I give, and is like my number one kind of critic and speechwriter for me. So there's a ton of things that she's doing now to support the business that. A couple of years ago, I couldn't have ever fathomed us doing, but because of working with a relationship coach, we're now working so well that we can work together in a professional capacity. And that's been something that's just been really amazing the last, call it year or two since Ascendant's really come into its own, is that it used to feel like my professional career and my relationship were polar opposites, both pulling on me. And whenever I invested in one, it was to the detriment of the other. For the first time ever, Those things are meshed and both pushing in the same direction, which I think is probably the biggest thing that any married entrepreneur could hope for or want to achieve in their relationship.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. And thank you. And it wasn't always that way, right? I mean, it's, it's been a journey getting there and you've had a coach to help on that journey and you guys have obviously worked towards it. And this isn't something that just
0: happens overnight. (laughs) Oh, Uh, absolutely not. We've been married almost 10 years. And uh, the first five, we didn't have a relationship coach. And man, I wish I would have started earlier. We definitely learned the hard way that we needed some help and needed some guidance, you know, but we got there. Taking notes right now. (laughs) 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 Sure,
1: others out there are too. And welcome any comments around you know, others that are working through similar things in their relationship, because this this shit is hard, man. It's it's not it's not an easy journey to be an entrepreneur or the, the significant other of one. So I want to flip topics real quick because there's something that you and I've talked about that I just I love talking about with you in particular. And it's this it's this concept of unfitting yourself from product market fit, right? Which sure. is, you know, product market fit. You know, you have it, right? You get, you're getting pulled in by the market. You've got this clear path towards, towards growing through and, and ultimately making decisions that for some reason, based Mm -hmm. on this great idea you have or whatever it might be, that you unfit yourself from it. So, talk to me Mm -hmm. a little bit about what that means to you and where you've seen that obstacle come up.
0: Yeah. So uh, with any software product or really with any product in general, it, it is the most important thing. If you don't have product market fit, you don't have a company, you don't have a business, like the best sales and marketing are, are going to not work if you don't have a product that people want and a product that doesn't serve a real need in the marketplace. So, it, and, and you can have product market fit. And then as the company evolves or the company grows, you can literally unfit yourself because your vision deviated from your customer's vision of what they wanted or you forget your original base of customers and you start to go upstream and go after bigger deal sizes more enterprise clients and you inadvertently leave your base of small guys in the dust and then you weren't banking on that part of your business falling out and now you're going backwards chasing the bigger fish you know where you were thinking it was going to be additive i'm going to chase big fish while also keeping the small fish but you lose that you know smaller school of fish now now you're in trouble a particular example of this is when I was working at Stacks. We started as a payment processor and our, our disruptive feature was that we were subscription based. And so we tr- instead of being like Square, where they charge 3% plus whatever transaction fee on every transaction, a lot of people don't realize that's up to a 500% markup. Like the margins are, it's highway robbery really. And so our founder came in and said, hey, I bet if I just charge a flat monthly fee and then it's wholesale cost after that. Business owners will like that because it saved them, saved people like 50% on their credit card processing costs. And we're going to be transparent. We're not going to have added fees. You know, we are going to be the merchant's friend instead of a necessary evil. And we are going to help these small business owners build their business, which is a great concept. And it was disruptive. It got us a ton of press. The company took off like a rocket after that got out into the marketplace and it worked really, really well. Now, the thing is, payment processing companies are not really worth that much as a business. I mean, they are, but software companies are worth a lot more. And something that we saw, and this is us fitting our market really well, is we saw that there were not a lot of good tech-enabled payment processors out there, tech-enabled tools, and You also had to have multiple solutions. So, like if I own a website and I have a retail store, I have two different payment processors, two different sets of books, you know, two different bank accounts, and it's a nightmare to reconcile. It literally doubles your accounting costs for a small business owner, it's a nightmare. Like they don't want to spend time doing that and it takes away from them running their business. So, we built a piece of software where you had all your data in one place. At the time was called Omni, now it's called Stacks Pay, but you could manage your whole business, all your financials, and all your payment processing from a single platform, which was really groundbreaking and really you know revolutionary. And so that was us providing value. And we built the software from the ground up. We were in the first payment processing companies to do that. So we're fitting into our market, we're listening to what our, our merchants want in that case. Now, the flip side of this is we were like, okay, we've really unlocked something here by being this software-enabled payment processor. And our company is going to be more valuable the more that we lean and the more that we sell this software, the more that our merchants adopt it. And so we decided we're going to be a software company now, which again, is, is right from a valuation perspective. But we started pushing up our pricing. And our our whole strategy was, we're going to be you know subscription-based. We're going to save you money. And we flipped to well, we don't have to save you money anymore because we're saving you so much time with this amazing piece of software, which in our heads made sense. We're, you know, we're not the cheapest, but we are providing the most value, or at least that's what we told ourselves. And it's still true. But the thing is, that's not what the market necessarily wanted. And we started to see backlash because at the end of the day, we are still providing payment processing. We Merchants still want to see savings, at least at the smaller merchant level that aren't super tech dependent. It's different when you get into enterprise level companies and they need that tech. And so as we were trying to up our average deal size and charge more for the software, we alienated our original base that we started with. And there was a lot of product positioning, a lot of marketing that we had updated because we flipped from we're the cheapest to we save you all this time with this amazing technology. And it alienated a lot of our customer base. And again, there was a lot of smart people at that company, and the company's you know gone way north valuation and acquired a ton of customers since then. So we corrected this, but we had to rewind a lot of that and go, okay, no, we, we can't raise the prices this much. We do still need to provide savings. We need to provide different packages to address different people's needs instead of forcing everybody into a software package because straight up gas station owners don't care about having software and having analytics on their payments. They just don't. They never will. You know, there's certain businesses that this doesn't make sense for. And so we had to do some unbundling and we had to do some pricing adjustments and basically tailor different products and different packages to every single audience and say, okay, we're still going to continue to push upstream. We're still going to push into becoming more tech heavy. We're still going to go after enterprise clients, but we need to have packages also tailored to where we came from, which is these simpler merchants who just want savings. And so that's how we got back into our fit. And it worked. We did sell more enterprise clients and we did they are a full-blown software company now and viewed that way and valued that way based on the transactions they've gone through. But it was definitely... Uh, you know, we definitely hit our heads a few times. I think there was two or three different moments where we kind of unfit our product or built a product that we thought was really innovative and cool. And then, you know, it just, it wasn't what we thought it was in our heads, you know, the audience, the merchants, the business owners just were not as receptive.
1: Yeah, that happens, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and and if there's one tip you want people to take away from that, what would that tip be?
0: Doing doing research on your customer base, building a really good relationship with them, focus grouping, you know, and and really being thorough about it. Because we thought that we were being thorough. We did that. We had called a, uh, you know, customer advocate board or customer advisory board that we had. The problem was they were what we define as our best customers. And so they were the customers that were using all the tech and that were spending the most money. And so there's a bias there. It wasn't a good sample size and a good distribution of our entire book and of our entire mix. And for that reason too, I, I would say don't try to do it yourself. We, we were, our thought was, well, we have, we, cause our, our customer service was amazing. We did have really great relationships with a lot of our business owners and we thought, well, we can do this ourselves. The first time that we, outsourced the uh, focus grouping and the customer feedback, we got such better data than when we did it ourselves, because there just wasn't the selection bias there.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. Terrific, Mason. When you think of some of the other, let's call them lessons learned and, and mistakes <clears throat> made around sales and marketing that, that mm. kind of ties towards this, right? You know, obviously, you know, listening to your customers, pivotal, not unfitting mm-hmm. yourself from product market fit, pivotal. But what are some other things that would fit in the sales and marketing bucket that, that are just some mistakes that were made early on that other founders can learn from?
0: Sure. I, I think so. I, I tend to come from the media buying side, from the advertising side. A big thing that I see a lot of founders mess up is the prioritization of, of dollars. What's step one, two, three, four in the marketing mix as you grow? Because you know, in the world of founding, like being being too early is just as bad as being too late. And I see a lot of founders jump the gun on certain tactics that they're not ready for. Like I've seen founders that are like, I want to go and hire a PR agency. I want to get those articles in Inc and in Fortune and Forbes. Let's go spend 5,000 bucks to hire a PR agency, but they're spending, you know, 10,000 bucks a month in paid ads that are getting them a positive return. That PR agency, you know, not that PR is not great, But when you're at that small stage, you need every dollar to generate a return to build the snowball. PR is awesome, but it yields very slowly and unpredictably. And when you're starting a company, you need predictable revenue growth, you know, and you can't be spending dollars that aren't going to pay for six months. You know, when you've gone through a couple of rounds of funding and you're a bigger brand, absolutely. But that's a big one where I've seen people go, you know, way too early as they go into PR too early. And another example right now, it's this is more shiny object syndrome, but TikTok. TikTok Mm. ads are great, but they still do not have the same ROI as Google and Facebook. So if you were jumping into TikTok and you haven't maxed out Google and Facebook, you're leaving meat on the bone because your returns on TikTok are going to be lower than those two platforms. Max out Facebook and max out Google before going to that other platform and chasing that shiny object. And and I'm talking about this in the context of marketing and media mix, but this can be applied to, to anything you know shiny object syndrome is is tough to resist as a founder because every single department is going to be bringing you you know your customer service might be bringing you hey there's this new tool it's going to up our you know NPS scores and it's going to help us give better service blah 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 but that tool might cost more than your entire payroll for your customer service at that time like it it doesn't it's not going to make sense for that stage not that yeah. it's not great but you're not there yet
1: yeah what about email marketing and, and conversion rates and things along those lines any any hard lessons learned, as I know a lot of other founders have in in leveraging email is it from a marketing perspective or not understanding how their funnel is converting from a website, you know, inbound perspective?
0: Sure. I think a, a big lesson that we learned with email that we went through when we were at Stacks is when when I joined the company, there was this idea that sales owns email, because only the salespeople talk to the customer. And so there was one-to-one emails being sent, or really they weren't one to one, call it, you know, batches of 50 or whatever. But the salespeople were sending all the emails. And so those are all it's one-to-one cell communication. It's plain text. It's hey, so-and-so are you interested in a demo? Or hey, I saw you're browsing our website, or hey, can I send you any more information? It's it's very salesy. And it was the attitude was marketing, don't touch, don't touch our prospects, don't email them. You're gonna screw up the sales process. But What, what they didn't realize at the time is that it's two different messages and that they're actually very complementary to each other. You want, yes, you want your sales team to be emailing your prospects and be reaching out to them with those direct either, you know, relationship building or sales building or demo booking type of calls to action. But marketing at the same time is going to send a different message. It's going to be very educational. It's going to be, Hey, information about the company, information about the product, information about the brand, and you can email twice as frequently and have twice as many touch points without pissing off the customer because they understand it's coming from two different places. And you're giving two different pieces of information. And when we doubled our more than doubled our emailing and we started emailing for marketing and sales, now we coordinated to make sure that they weren't getting a sales sequence email and a marketing email on the same day. So we had our sequence pretty well choreographed out. But we, are, we saw our conversion rates from email double because we doubled our touch points and we were reaching from both sides of the business. Which this also kind of leads me into another, another point about, you know, sales and marketing. Sales, The head of sales and the head of marketing need to learn to be best friends. That was another big lesson is initially when I joined the company, you know, me and the, the head of sales, we didn't quite trust each other. You know, we, we both came from different schools of thought. We'd both been successful in our own rights. We're type A, strong personalities. And it, it took us a little while to build that trust together. But once we built that trust and we were actually communicating and coordinating, we were so much more successful. And it's it's crazy because we started out with a really kind of head-butting type of relationship. We haven't worked together in a couple of years now. We've both gone other places. We're still great friends. We still talk every single week. And we started out as not enemies, but definitely definitely adversaries. And so it is really important if you're a sales leader or a marketing leader or a CEO sitting above these two positions, to force them to like each other force them to work together because they are they are really complementary and but the nature of the two is to fight each other so it's the more that you can you know kind of be vulnerable and lean in the better things are going to go because you as a marketer you're looking at charts and graphs right and so there's qualitative things that are happening on those sales calls that you will not get from charts and graphs and by the flip side sales sales leaders tend to be a little more qualitative really good ones are data driven and do do analysis uh but they might be seeing, oh man, five calls came in in a row, you know, five leads came in in a row that sucked, but they tend to miss the macro picture sometimes because they're just, they're looking at small sample sizes and the overall trend might be good. And so that's where marketing and sales can really complement each other is marketing brings that data-driven piece most of the time and sales can bring the qualitative piece that complements this. And when you put those together is really when high efficiency and when magic starts to happen in the sales process and in the funnel.
1: You mentioned a few things that I wanna call out there. so you know, sales versus marketing is this constant battle, right? But the sooner you can think of it as a revenue team, right? Or, Mm -hmm. or it's aligning sales and marketing, the the better you're going to have from a results perspective, hands down, no matter Mm -hmm. what, right? Just that, that's number one. And number two, just as you're, as you're thinking about quantitative versus qualitative and and data-driven versus understanding of you know feedback that might not be getting entered in the CRM, mm-hmm. but is incredibly important to get entered into the CRM mm-hmm. if you're doing it right. Connecting those dots is going to be incredibly impactful towards how you can serve the customer and how you can go get more customers. Mm-hmm. So super important. That whole concept of revenue team is, is not as, not as popular as it should be. Let's just say that mm-hmm. revenue operations, right? Cause it is one path towards getting revenue sales and marketing it's just a matter of how you work in unison
0: yeah it, it absolutely is and i would say one other thing that's really important as a ceo or a sales leader or a marketing leader the head of sales and the head of marketing need to meet in a room once a week by themselves with no one else there without question that that might sound really obvious but it's actually not the normal in a lot of companies. In a lot of companies, leadership team gets together once a week. Marketing's there, sales there, the other departments are there. If that's the only time when they're interacting, there's going to be a lot of sparring, a lot of kind of like fighting for personal fiefdoms. And the walls are going to be up because there's an audience. When you start getting in a room, just the two of you, and you just start actually talking and problem solving, like the trust building and the relationship building and the progress that's made in that one-on-one meeting it is massive. And so, again, this may seem obvious. It was something we did not do until, I don't know, I think I'd been at the company a year before we started, before me and the head of sales were like, hey, you know, we should probably be talking one-on-one like every week. And we started doing that. And that was probably my most productive meeting every single week.
1: When it clicks, it clicks. Mm -hmm. That's that's great, man. Are there any key metrics that people can keep in mind when aligning sales and marketing?
0: Yeah. So the biggest metric that we looked at was just our SQL generation because marketing, you know, there m- many marketing teams are guilty of, look at all these leads that we generated and sales says, yeah, but the quality was crap. We only closed this many deals. And so the sales qualified lead stage was really what we unified on because that's, that's, Kind of where the agreement happens, right? It's sales saying yes, we agree, this is a good lead and so that's where we where we focus was on that MQL to SQL conversion rate and cost per SQL because y- you can even have your SQL to or your MQL to SQL rate drop really low. but if your MQLs are super super cheap, if your leads are cheap, you can have a low conversion rate to SQL and the math still works. So really I'd say it was cost per SQL is the biggest thing we focused on to determine is this is this working?
1: You hit on something so important. And I just want to let that sink into everyone listening, which is should you track MQLs and everything prior to that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Should your marketing folks be compensated purely on marketing qualified leads and not the conversion to sales or to revenue abs- or to sales qualified leads or revenue? Absolutely not, because it is incredibly important that what is being qualified at the marketing level move down funnel to sales qualified leads. And the same goes for BDR teams, right? That are, that are putting in place or anyone that's top of funnel driving things down funnel is the connection and the cost per SQL, as you said, but also the cost per deal, right? And the customer acquisition cost as a whole. So that's absolutely, that's, that's awesome. Take notes, everyone. That's, that is, that is the the one thing that I want you to remember (laughs) is definitely one of them. Okay. So let's just flip gears here. One more thing here that I really want to touch on, because we've talked a lot about it as it relates to sales and marketing, which is the way that people hire, right? Mm -hmm. Talent mistakes or the way that people are hiring either overpaying or Mm -hmm. paying high for talent in key roles, or maybe finding diamonds in the roof for a, Mm -hmm. a lower compensation. Talk to me a little bit about some of the things that you've done to either you know, really overpay for the right resources or mm-hmm. underpay for the right resources.
0: Absolutely, yeah. This is something that I think we did really, really well at Stacks. Uh, we were really good at finding the right talent and putting the right talent in the right seat and acquiring the right people. And that was, I think, probably the biggest secret sauce to our success was our was our talent. But we did that with two different approaches. You know, as a company, we th- we have a reputation in Orlando for being one of the best paying companies. And especially for key roles, we were willing to overpay. Even I was one of those roles. You know, like I I came in and I came in for my interview and I think it was 30% more expensive than the range. And me and the CEO sat down. and I said, look, I promise you, I know I'm more than what you you know want to pay. I promise you, I will bring back that Delta to you at least 10 X if you take that gamble on me. And I was able to do that. I've made, I've honestly, that's been my best interview pitch ever. I've I've said that in probably every interview that I've done so far, I'm batting a thousand and it's gotten me all the job. I've been able to return it and it's gotten me the job every time, but that was something that we, that we did really well is we overpaid for really key top talent positions and we always saw massive ROI on that. Now that being said, you cannot overpay across the board. You cannot overpay for everyone. And, and particularly in, in marketing, our philosophy was every dollar possible has to go to lead gen. And so even though we had you know an eight-figure budget, our headcount budget and our payroll was was kind of was not was kind of low in proportion to the amount of dollars that we deployed, the amount of content that we put out, etc. So for me, the challenge as a leader was how do I you know staff these positions with good people how do I still build a rock star caliber team because we definitely had rock star level you know demands and goals placed on us but I would say uh we had a- average not bad but just average payroll level so I had to so how do I go out and get rock star talent with average with an average level salary and for me, what I was able to find was if I could find people who, di- those diamonds in the rough, who had been passed over by other companies, laid off from other companies, fired from other companies, people that were kind of like just maybe quirky in the interview process, whatever, but had a great resume, I was able to build a really, a really solid team. And I, those all sound like red flags as I'm listing them off. But what I dug into is like this person laid off. Why did they get laid off? This person got fired. Why did they get fired? What made them... Unsuccessful in that other organization, and could we correct for that here? And so I had people with all those red flags, and we were able to path it to make them successful in our organization. And, and a lot of it too, also goes back to just empathy and not having a cookie cutter leadership approach. I, I had, you know, the joke was I had the band of misfit toys, you know, that was kind of my, my team, you know, everybody was so different. Like this group would never hang out together on the weekends. They were all very, very different. And marketing is that way. Anyway, it's so multifaceted. You've got the math and science side, media buyers. And then on the other side, you've got like copywriters and social media managers and, uh, and graphic designers. But I was able to kind of maximize each of my team members performance because I tailored my approach. Every single one of my one on ones was completely different just because I realized that people have different human needs. They have different things that motivate them. And so instead of having this like, here's your one on one template, you know, like when I was at Disney, everybody filled out the same sheet for their one on one. It was all very mechanical. And there were people on my team I did that with because that's what worked for them. But there were also people on my team that I spent more time know talking with them about how their family was doing or how their kids were doing because that really mattered to them and this is another key piece too is like a, a boss barks orders right like a leader is truly able to get their team behind them and some of these people like they they just wanted somebody that cared about them and if you showed them that you cared about them and and i genuinely did i loved every single person on my team But if you genuinely cared about them and embrace them as people and not just employees, man, they'll charge in a battle. They'll go to war for you. They'll like they'll lay it all on the line, you know, for the team to make the team and to make you successful because you cared. And so if I was going to sum it up, you know, find diamonds in the rough and they may be quirky. They may have that, you know, they may have a screw or two loose or whatever. But if you figure out, okay, well, you know, how to make them successful and how to accommodate, you know, and, and most of it is quirks. A lot of this stuff was just like stylistic stuff. Somebody's really shy or, you know, somebody has a tough situation at home that requires them to work remotely more often. And that sounds obvious now, but pre-COVID when I hired a lot of these people, you know, some of them had more complicated family situations. And that's part of, I think, why they things didn't go so well for them at their previous employer we accommodated that and they did great. And actually the more that we accommodated them and the more freedom, the more trust we gave them, the better they performed. Mm -hmm. But in a strict fortune 500 company there, that's not very well understood or they're not going to put up with it. So if you can lead with empathy, really care about people, you know, tailor your approach to your people and look for people that have been passed over. Don't assume that somebody that's been laid off or been fired is not a good employee. They were probably somewhere that just wasn't a good fit. and so. By looking, you know, kind of in that grouping, I was able to find a really great talent that everybody else was passing over, and I was able to build a rock star team with, call it, average, you know, market rate pay.
1: Love it, man! So many good tips here, and we're gonna need to do a part two of this, by the (laughs) way. So (laughs) get ready for that. But all right, we always close off every one of these episodes with a, a founder five, as I like to refer to it, which is just a quick hit list of things that all have to do with growth and you mason and so first on that list is the top kpi that you are relentlessly focused on
0: so i'm going to give you two cost for acquisition lifetime customer value
1: nailed it nice tech companies (laughs) listen up (laughs) all right second one is a top tip for growth stage founders like yourself
0: I think it goes back to prioritizing your dollars. Uh, being being too early is just as bad as being too late. Make sure that your dollars and where you're putting them is what makes the most sense for the stage of growth that you're at.
1: Nice. All right, a uh, favorite book or podcast that's helped you grow as a founder? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I, I've got got two there. I talked about the alter ego effect by Todd Herman. That's probably my number one book. In terms of podcasts, there's two by the same guy. One that's not being made anymore, but I think it's still out there. It's called the MFCEO by Andy Frisella. And then he has a, another podcast he's doing now called Real AF, but they're both by Andy Frisella. He's I, I've gotten a ton of value listening to him and learning from him as an entrepreneur.
1: Nice. Awesome. Okay. And let's see here the actor that would play you in a movie.
0: Yeah, so uh, I would say Hugh Jackman. I've actually, I've had people make the comparison between us over the years. I don't know if I necessarily see it, but I've gotten it enough times to where I think that that's, that's who it would be. You know, and he's a badass too. I love the Wolverine movies. So, hey, I'll I'll take it. Well,
1: 99.99% of the audience is listening only. So Just to compare it to, why don't you guys hop on YouTube, check it out. We got a real Hugh Jackman with us today. so (laughs) Awesome. All right. And then the last one here is when all is said and done, you look back, you're like, damn, I did an awesome job. What is going to be the title of your autobiography?
0: The Billion Dollar Marketer.
1: Nice. Love it.
0: That's always been that's been my vision is to, you know, I've built one company to a billion dollars in the B2B space. My goal is to do it again and hopefully do it in a different vertical and hopefully in the D2C space. Actually, there's so few people that do it multiple times and do it multiple times in different verticals. So that's that that's the lifetime goal. I'm halfway there. And, you know, if I get there, then I'll write a great marketing book. (laughs) I actually have no
1: doubt that you with the support that you've mentioned will get there. So watch out, Mason, everyone. (laughs) All right. So you've given so much to our listeners today, Mason. Time for a little bit of self-promotion. How can those listening help you out?
0: Yeah, so... One way, follow me on social media, consume my content. You know, I, I love building businesses, but I also, I, I love sharing my story, especially the story that we talked about of cancer, overcoming adversity, helping other business owners build their businesses. And, and so I put out a lot of content on LinkedIn, on Facebook, et cetera. And on on my website at masondorner.com. That's just general business and entrepreneurship advice. So if you follow me there, you know, i help me help you and consume my content. If you've got a an early stage, you know, SaaS or e-commerce business that needs marketing, sales, and revenue generation service, again, you can reach out to me at masondorner.com, fill out the form on there. If you're if you're at a stage where it makes sense where you're ready to take on a marketing agency, you're ready to, you know, outsource your marketing and sales and kind of step on the growth button, like you've gotten proof of concept in your business, you're making some revenue, now you're ready to make a lot, you know, MasonDorner.com, fill out the consultation request and maybe we'll work together.
1: And if you want a testimonial, hit me up.
0: <laughs> awesome. Love you.
1: Yeah, that's great, man. You've been stellar today. And just closing us off, thanks for thanks for sharing your dirt today.
0: Appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. This is great. Absolutely. Take care, man.
1: If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.